0: Morning, welcome to Bible study this morning. So glad to have you here with us, and a special welcome to those listening in the St. Louis area on AM 850 KFUO and on KFUO.org. A few news and notes before we begin our study this morning. First, happy Fourth of July! I know a lot of us are very thankful for this wonderful uh, early July weather we're having. It's a beautiful, beautiful weekend to celebrate uh, with friends and family. There are handouts in the back corner. If anyone did not grab a handout. Um, but if you'd like to take notes on those, or you can use your phone or uh, your own personal Bible if you brought that with you as well. Uh, today, we are going to try to get to the end of Luke 2. And I say that because we've been, I, I, every time I've done this study so far, since we started in summer, I prepare for about 20 verses more than I ended up getting to. So we'll see how far we get today, but we're going to try to finish Luke chapter 2 today. And again, we'll find some very familiar words, words that not only uh, have a special place uh, in our faith life, but in our liturgical life as well as a church. And so uh, it's really a a great chance to get to study all of that. But before we begin, let us start with a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, we come before you as your humble servants, praying that you allow us to proclaim your gospel passionately uh, with the the joy that you set in our lives through your Son, Jesus Christ. That you, Lord, would bless our country, you would bless the leaders you have placed in charge Uh, of us in this country as our governing authorities, and that you would allow us to uh, safely and with great joy celebrate this holiday weekend. And it's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Uh, I was uh, reminded last year that uh, July 4th was on a Saturday, and the one thing that that makes a problem is when you're a pastor and fireworks are going off till about 2 in the morning (laughs) on a Saturday night, Sunday Sunday morning. Um, But this year... Is obviously on a Sunday. All right, so we begin at Luke 2, uh, starting at verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Um, and of course, this goes back just a few uh, verses into Luke, into Luke chapter 1, where we can read Gabriel, uh, tell Mary that he should be called Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And that, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph, we're going to see several times in Luke 2. You see their uh, devotion, their piety, their righteousness. His family um, is not more righteous than anyone else, but they are. We are given an example here in Luke 2 several times of their um, not only willingness, but devotion to follow the law of the Lord and the the customs, um, the Jewish customs of the day. And one of those is, at the end of eight days, the child would be circumcised. And we're going to get to another one immediately next. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. Remember last week we talked about, you always go up to Jerusalem. doesn't matter if you're going south, east, west, north. You always go up to Jerusalem. Uh, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, if you wouldn't mind turning with me all the way back to Leviticus chapter 12, turn all the way back to Leviticus chapter 12, we read exactly what is referenced here in Luke 2. Luke 2. In starting at verse 12, uh, starting at verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be unclean for seven days. And as the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She now should, shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean for two weeks. And if you continue down just a little bit, we get to what they were doing, what Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, are doing in the temple. Uh, That when the days of her purifying are completed, whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her then she shall be clean. If you look at verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. One as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. Now, why is it uh, important to kind of go back and read that? Well, one of the things you may notice right away about Jesus being presented at the temple is what sort of offering do Mary and Joseph, what sort of offering are they able to make? We just read that there were two types. You could either offer a lamb and a turtle dove, or if you were unable to afford a lamb, you could offer two turtle doves. And so in verse 24 we read, They offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what does that imply right away about uh, Mary and Joseph? Yeah. That's exactly right. They're of poor and humble means. Again, we've talked about this at the start of Luke here. You really see, and we're going to continue to see, how God's plan of salvation involves the people that you may not expect. He didn't take the best student. He didn't take the richest or most powerful family. In fact, just the opposite. He took a virgin. He took someone of poor and humble means in Joseph. And he chose them to raise, literally himself, as, God, as Christ is God. So they offer that sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then we get into what is really, a, I think, an incredibly uh, special part of the Gospel of Luke. And you can imagine what it must have been like be Simeon. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I'm going to have us turn to uh, two separate places in uh, the book of Isaiah. So if you want to turn to Isaiah, we're going to look at two different verses in the book of Isaiah, and what it means that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, so the first place is Isaiah 25. So if you turn to Isaiah 25. And if you go to verse 9, and this is a well-known section. We had it in our lectionary just a few weeks, or about a few months ago, I believe. Um, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us uh, be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And if you would turn just a few chapters later into Isaiah 40, verse 1. We'll give it just a second here. We read, comfort, comfort my people, says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we just looked at that, I think it was either last week or the week before that, when talking about John the Baptist, the one who was preparing the way of the Lord. But this idea of consolation, that God was going to come into his people, people who were struggling, people who uh, at the, in those days were under Roman rule. He was going to come to his people and comfort them, reconcile them, console them, quite literally, and bring about his promised salvation. So that's what it means that Simeon was waiting for this consolation of Israel. Waiting for that moment when God would console, would reconcile, would bring back, would comfort his people that were afflicted, that were under oppression, that were at those, in those days not uh, under their own freedoms, but rather under Roman rule. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, "Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word." Now, when you've heard this probably discussed in the past, what comes to your mind when you think of Simeon just as an individual? What do we generally think he was? Old, that's exactly right. You notice here in Luke 2, Does it mention he's old? No. Now, could he have been old? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong in thinking that Simeon was uh, an older gentleman. Certainly, he wasn't a child. (laughs) Um, But we really don't know how old he was. The only clue that we are given that he may have been uh, older is the statement, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. But we're not given any other other direct evidence that Simeon was... 90 or 100 or even 80 or 60 or 70 or even 50. But rather we're just told that Simeon had been uh, told by the Holy Spirit he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. Uh, And and I think what's really interesting there is if you think about um, what the word Christ means, of course, it's one of the few times you have a possessive uh, statement with it, that it is the Lord's Christ, meaning the Lord's appointed one the Lord's anointed one, the one the Lord has sent. So not any Christ, and not um, any sort of anointing, but rather the consolation one, the one who would be prophesied to come and to reconcile Israel. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Uh, and again, that's another instance where, how did the Spirit reveal that? Again, we're not told. And it's one of those times where we can uh, imagine, maybe it was a vision, maybe God came to him at some point, or an angel revealed it to him, but all we know is that God had made it known to him through the Holy Spirit uh, that he would not see death before he would seen the Lord's Christ. So we read verse 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Uh, What a bizarre scene to have been able to witness in that uh, temple. A, A joyous scene. But one of the things that strikes me when we think about the Nunc Dimittis, which is what this is called often, uh, the Song of Simeon, in our liturgy, we often sing it after communion, for example, uh, is what has changed for him? He is saying, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. What in his life has changed? What in Israel's life has changed from that morning till after he saw the child? I'm sorry, he is assured of salvation, yes, but what strikes me is that nothing has directly changed. This is an infant, this is a child, and yet he can make that proclamation in faith that he has seen the salvation that God has prepared in the sight of all peoples. That afternoon, the Romans are still ruling, Uh, Jesus has not risen from the dead yet, Has not been crucified yet. Has not done any miracles yet. And yet in faith, he gives that joyful proclamation. Uh, I think it's a wonderful testament. And we we read right away that he was righteous and devout. But you see that in that proclamation that uh, you wonder, it must have seemed a little strange. I'll just put it that way. For those who probably knew Simeon. What do you mean you've seen the salvation of God? Uh, This is a child. This is an infant. It's not a king. you know. It, it does not appear like they had in their mind the salvation of God, how it was supposed to look. And yet in faith, Simeon can very joyously proclaim, I have seen your salvation. Uh, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Another thing that is just absolutely striking right here is who does... Simeon confess the Lord's Christ is for. Yes, Gentiles and Israelites. Now if we uh, from what we know later on in the Gospels, how well received is that proclamation when Jesus makes it? Not too well received. Um, and yet here even as an infant, Simeon or looking beholding the infant Lord, Simeon can, in great joy, confess that this salvation is not just for me and my household, not just for the ethnic people of Israel, not just for those who follow the Old Testament law perfectly, but no, it's a light of revelation, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. We go ahead and continue on to verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I, what a ten days, what a month, what a first couple of years it must have been to be Mary and Joseph. <laughs> um, first you have the, the uh, shepherds who come on the night of his birth. Right? And we read that Mary, many wondered, but Mary treasured these things in her heart. And now when he is presented in the temple, Simeon very boldly makes this proclamation and his father and mother marvelled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that from many hearts may be revealed oh. Now there's the part two to Simeon's proclamation. And there is both joy and also the acknowledgement of Mary's own unique sorrow in God's plan of salvation. I say unique sorrow because uh, as Simeon says to her, uh, a sword will pierce through your own side also. Uh, Mary is certainly unique in terms of being the one to bear to uh, be the mother of God himself. And yet, Mary is also unique in being the same mother to watch her son die on a cross. Her innocent son die on a cross. And here in uh, Luke 2, I believe that we see a, a acknowledgement by Simeon of the unique sorrow that Mary will have to experience. The unique sorrow that she will go through being there some 30 plus years later Uh, on Mount Calvary. And so there is great joy in Simeon's words, but also this acknowledgement that eh, it's not pain-free, and it's certainly not pain-free for Mary, that she will experience a great uh, sorrow. Uh, Another really interesting thing about the second part of this blessing that Simeon gives to uh, Jesus is that, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of of many in Israel. That word rising is actually the same word for resurrection in Greek. And you don't want to make, again, too much out of this, but again, you already see this foreshadowing of what will be. That what does Christ's uh, resurrection give to us? Well, he is a first fruit of what we will experience. We, of course, confess every Sunday in, in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed the resurrection of the body. And so here in Luke 2, you have just an amazing uh, testimony given by Simeon. Not only that he has seen God's salvation, but it will include the fall and resurrection of many in Israel. It will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles, is prepared in the presence of all peoples. uh, And Mary, you will have a unique sorrow, um, but also a great joy. Yes? Yes? Absolutely. She had a mother's love for this child. Um, And and of course, as the disciples themselves did not understand, she she did not understand that he was going to rise on Easter morning. She had that real sorrow of seeing her son go through a a torturous uh, death, all for being God's salvation for his people. Yeah, so uh, we continue then in verse 36, And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, you notice it's an interesting change of nouns there. He doesn't say the redemption of Israel, or, but for the redemption of where? Jerusalem. You know, in Luke, uh, Jerusalem plays such a central focus, and it certainly does in all the Gospels, but especially in Luke, this idea that uh, God's salvation kind of begins and ends in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so you see that with the prophetess Anna. And we, I think, briefly touched on it. I I was talking with you a little bit, Bud, that it was amazing to see who God revealed this to. Anna, as a prophetess, is also a widow. Again, this is not the people that you would pick for God to reveal this wonderful news to. Just like the shepherds. (laughs) Well, if we want to start way back, just like, You wouldn't expect him to pick a virgin. You wouldn't expect him to pick someone from Nazareth. You wouldn't expect God to reveal this to a bunch of shepherds in a field outside of Bethlehem. You would not expect uh, God to reveal this to Simeon. You would not expect God to reveal this to a widow. A widow who kind of was not seen in those days, to not have a husband, to not have a male heir to take care of you, was a great uh, difficulty. And that's why one of the things uh, Jesus says, and in in quoting Isaiah uh, later on in Luke, is that the year of the Lord's favor means that he brings comfort to the widow, to the orphan. A widow would not be the person you'd expect to get to go and proclaim this, and yet that's exactly who God uses proclaim that the very same proclamation Simeon had that she has seen the salvation God has prepared before all people uh, and she gives thanks to God and uh, spoke of him the child Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem are there any questions yes So uh, it is understood that that is generally um, after this, when the wise men visit. But this is one of those things that, um, again, it's a little bit, trying to piece together the exact timeline, it does become just a little bit uh, challenging. And so there, there are some things that, um, you know, we can't pick the exact, for example, even the date of Christmas, right? We don't have that exact date. Now, for many millennia, Christmas has been celebrated on December 25th. But, again, it's not that... uh, There's a difference, I would say, between having everything explained and having everything we need explained. And in the Gospels, we have everything we need to understand God's promised salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. But we don't have every single thing explained. Uh, And we're going to see that a little bit later on in Luke 2, when Luke shares the story of Jesus uh, in the temple, that at Passover, his family came to Jerusalem and then left, and Jesus stayed behind. Why didn't he let them know? We don't exactly know. Why did he do that? Why did he do it at age 12? Why didn't he do it at age 13? Again, there's a difference between having everything explained and everything we need to know. Um, explained, and so it's you know the, those are good questions to ask, but there are there are some places that especially that timeline it does become a little difficult. But I would say that that fleeing to Egypt would be after uh, his purification or his presentation, sorry, and circumcision. Um, one because it's only eight days, and the wise men if generally understood came actually maybe even a couple years after Jesus had been born, so. Yes, done. Well, so in those days, it, it worked just a little bit different. Even in our baptismal rite today, what's one of the questions we ask the parents? How is this child to be named? Did that child have that name before that time? Yes. And I would even go as far to say, um, does a child have the, their name before the birth certificate is signed? Yes, that they, their name is what their parents um, elect uh, to call them. And in this case, Jesus is unique in that who elected to call him Jesus? Not Mary, but God. And that's what Gabriel said. He shall be named this. He shall be named Jesus. Um, I'd, again, I, Again, I mean, I guess theoretically it would be possible, but it seems very... Uh, unlikely that Mary and Joseph did not reveal that his name would be Jesus uh, until the uh, date of his circumcision. But this is more customary that um, on that day, the parents would then tell the uh, priest in the temple what the child is to be named. So does that kind of help? Well, and uh, well, and Jesus is not a unique name only to Jesus. There, in fact, the the Old Testament equivalent to Jesus is Joshua. So, uh, if you, the Hebraicism would be Joshua, in English it's Jesus, uh, Spanish Jesus, in German, you know. The, so it's not that Jesus is the only. Now I'm trying to think how to say this without getting myself, yeah. Jesus is the only Jesus in the way that we think about him. But Jesus is not the only male named Jesus. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I've, I was trying to think how to say it without saying Jesus is not the only Jesus. Because Jesus is the only Jesus. I want to be very clear before we, yeah. Evangelist, yeah, that's a great point, Steve. So the comment was made. It's like John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. They're both John, um, but they're very. They both have very unique roles uh, in the gospel. You know, uh, John the Evangelist did not fill in for John the Baptist. (laughs) You know, they're two completely separate individuals. But yeah, I would say perhaps that's why um, Simeon was able to recognize it. We again don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit uh, pulled him outside of. You will see. Uh, the Lord's Christ, before you die. So we don't know if he was told, you know, wait for someone in this time that is named Jesus, or if through faith, through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, Simeon was able to immediately, before he ever found out what the name of the child would be, and I, I would tend to lean that way, that that's how Simeon was able to recognize Jesus, that through the Holy Spirit he was given this unique and special insight that this child is the lord 's Christ, the one that you had uh, been promised to see before you died, so yeah that's a, a good good point. Any other questions yes yes uh, yes, there are other prophetess she 's not unique in that. Um, Regard. I mean, she was very, again, both her and Simeon are very devout followers of God, and they are waiting for the redemption of God's people. Um, but that could also have been, I mean, that explains why she was in the temple. We read that she was in the temple day and night uh, since she became a widow. Uh, the other thing I want to just add before we move on, Uh, to the next section in their return to Nazareth um, and Jesus being in the temple, is that what's really, I think, an interesting uh, confession by Simeon is in verse 29, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. That word there is release. You are setting free your servant to depart in peace. Uh, And if you think about what it means that God's salvation is here for his people, that is here for you and I, uh, and what we are released from, that we are released from the the slavery to our sin, the bondage of our sin, through God's salvation alone, through Christ alone, through that little boy in that temple alone. Uh, And and very truly, we can make that same confession. We do. That's why it's part of our liturgical practice, and it's a wonderful thing to say, uh, let us depart in peace because we have seen, we know your salvation. And it's such a great part of our communion liturgy, to sing it after communion, because what have we literally beheld when we commune, when we participate in the Lord's Supper? The body and blood of Christ, receiving the true forgiveness of our sins. Um, perhaps we don't always think of it um, as, as deeply as we should, because it is a, such a regular practice of our worship life, but truly, every time we commune, we are beholding the salvation that God has prepared for us. Now, in a different way than Simeon beheld him, you know, seeing him in the temple. But it's no less present, it's no less real, that we are truly touching, seeing God's plan of salvation for us in our lives. And the same thing can be said at baptism. When we see a baby or an adult baptized, uh, we are seeing God choose them, claim them as his own. We are seeing the salvation that he has prepared for us as his people. All right, so we will uh, move on, if there are no other questions, to verse 39. All right. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, if we go back to Luke 1, verse 80, uh, we read a very similar passage. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And of course, who is that referring to? Well, John the Baptist. And so you have still this connection. We talked about that in Luke 1, that there's such a, a connection between um, Elizabeth and Mary, and in terms of there's such a connection between who John uh, would be, and who Jesus would be. Uh, that, again, that connection is made here, even in two, that were just like John uh, grew strong in the Spirit, so too, uh, the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, I talked about that. We would discuss a little bit just the what we see is the piety or the the righteousness, the the devotion that Jesus' family had to God. And one of the examples is right here. The whole family was not required to go to Jerusalem every year. The males were, if they were able, but the whole family was not required. And so for Mary to make that trip as well, for the whole family, and that's what it says, uh, his parents went every year at the Feast of the Passover For his whole family to come to the Passover every year is just another example of that devotion, that righteousness that Mary and Joseph had in their devotion and their love of the Lord. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Um, Now, I want to be very clear, Mary and Joseph were not unattentive parents. Uh, I think we read this in, sometimes in our context today and think, how could they have forgotten their child? Um, you know, it's not a, it's supposed to be a Christmas movie when that sort of thing happens, right? Um, but uh, in those days, there, was a, there would be a great number of people probably coming from Jerusalem, probably lots of relatives that would be, or coming from Nazareth, sorry, to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And so you would have uh, dozens, if not maybe a hundred or more people coming to Jerusalem making this pilgrimage to to Jerusalem. And much like if that were to happen today, it's a little tougher to keep an eye on everybody when you could probably trust, well, he's in the group somewhere. Um, And he's 12 years old. They've probably done this now. Well, they have done this 11 times. And 11 times he's been in the group. Uh, So I just want to be clear that they're not unattentive parents. They weren't, you know, asleep at the wheel here. And and also, Jesus was not being disrespectful. Uh, Even though... uh, I remember a time very distinctly where I got in trouble for getting lost in a Costco when I was like six years old. Um, I should have thought of this, Try to use that excuse. Oh, don't you know? I was. Um, but uh, Jesus was not being disrespectful to his parents, but rather, again, he was uh, acting in accord with his purpose, in accord with being the Lord's Christ, and we'll see that in his response. You notice he doesn't say... Um, yeah, sorry, I didn't listen, Mom and Dad, and, you know, stayed behind. No, he says, why are you wondering where I would be? Of course I would be in my father's house. Uh, so his parents do not know it. But supposing him to be in the, Oh, do you have a question, bud? And, and that's, a, that's a great point. So the comment was made, just for those listening on the radio, if you couldn't hear it here in the gym, that this, uh, being 12, this was kind of a, a special marker, an appointed time for him to kind of... Uh, I want to take the next step, but uh, establish that you know he does have this wisdom, this truly godly wisdom. That he is uh, both God and man. Uh, I would say, though, it's not a start. It's not the start of his ministry, because of course that's later on. But it is, I think, an important um, an important moment, which is why Luke records it. And it certainly tells us a lot about who this child is. in some ways, uh, you know, we don't have a oh, we don't have any information about his, for example, teenage years. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like though to be Jesus' brother or sister. <laughs> that, that, that'd have to be an interesting, uh, an interesting role I'll just put it that way. Um, but we don't have that information either. So I would say here, the reason why Luke includes it, the reason why it's, it's significant, is that we are shown very directly that this child has the wisdom of God himself. And that's, of course, why those who are listening in the temple, and we'll get there in just a minute, are absolutely floored. They're, they're almost in disbelief at how uh, wise this child could be. You know, there's no Google in those days. It's not like he had an iPad in his room and was just Googling all these things, and that's how he's able to know it. There's no way a child should be able to understand and converse in subjects that take decades to memorize in the oral traditions or, or even have great understanding of, of the scrolls, of the books of God's word um, at 12. That just, that wouldn't happen. He would should know some and certainly would know some, but uh, let's save that for a couple minutes so we can get there uh, first. Uh, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days... They found him in the temple. So not only do Mary and Joseph, you know, they do get about a day's journey, but when they get back to Jerusalem, and this, I believe, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus makes the statement, he does the way he makes it, where do they not go right away? To the temple. And again, that's not to say that they were being bad parents, but they probably had other relatives living in Jerusalem and figured, well, if Jesus didn't make it with the group, he's probably at you know, uh, Uncle John's house or uh, Aunt Hannah's, you know, place. And so they probably were going around Jerusalem to di- maybe even different areas where they had stayed in the past while they were up there for the Feast of Passover and checking, Are you, you know, is Jesus here? No. Is Jesus here? No. Um, but for three days, they don't go back to the temple. And after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, this is one of those ways that you would learn in those days. It was it, a little similar to if you've ever been in a, in a maybe a, like a plenary session in a college environment where uh, you are told to come basically with the material read and you just start with your questions. And that was really the primary way a uh, learning occurred when you were talking with rabbis in those days. You'd get around in a little circle or maybe in a little even uh, larger group and you would ask the rabbi what he thought of this. And maybe he would even pose questions to you. And so this would be a very common setting for people to be understand or to be learning in this way. This would be a very common setting um, environment, but what's uncommon is a 12-year-old with extreme wisdom, and we don't know what he was saying to uh, the rabbis, but we probably guess just a little bit that some of it was maybe a little controversial, given uh, how Jesus talks to rabbis uh, throughout the rest of the Gospels. You know? uh, we don't know exactly what topics came up, we don't know if they uh, were talking about the Sabbath, or the law of God, or even, um, you know, the consolation that perhaps they were still waiting for. But all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Where did Mary and Joseph think he was? Probably with a relative. Where was Jesus? Truly with a relative. (laughs) Um, And by that I mean, as he is God himself, he is in his father's house. He is in his temple. And so Jesus' response to them is not, again, is not a disrespectful response. Uh, Just like in John chapter 2 when Mary says, we have this great problem with the wine at the wedding of Canaan, and Jesus says, what is this to do with me? woman?" that's not a disrespectful um, response. But more, there is a, a true, I think, question here of why were you in distress? Why would you not know that I would be exactly where I needed to be? That I would go exactly where I needed to go, and in Jerusalem that's going to be the temple. And again, uh, the temple plays such a vital role in the Gospel of Luke, in Jerusalem as a whole. Um, and that's why its uh, I think you know, we don't diminish the role that Jerusalem has in uh, Jesus' life. And of course, this is where he would then come, and where the curtains, he probably looked at the very curtain that would be rent in two, that would be split in two. Uh, on, the, on Good Friday, on the day of his death. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, that's not a new theme, right, when Jesus speaks. Sometimes it's tough for the people in those in, in that moment to understand. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature... In favor with God in man. Now, I think it's very interesting that not only when he's born, um, and not only is there marveling at Simeon's proclamation, but even at 12, what is Mary doing when she sees Jesus? I don't want to say in in action, but when she sees what God is doing through Jesus, treasuring these things in her heart. And it highlights again the special role that she played as truly his mother, as the one who would bear God's son, as the one who raised God's son, as the one um, who searched in great distress for God's son because she was afraid he was lost. Um, So are there any questions then on Jesus? Yes, Dr. Bender. That is, a good, that is a good question. I think we see time and time again the unique uh, importance that Mary has. We see... Uh, that, that, that's a, that's a, actually a, a very good question. I hadn't thought of that question. That's a good... <laughs> um, but when you think about her role in the Gospels, we hear of Joseph as in the fact that his parents, for example, went up, not just Mary, but who does all the speaking in the Gospel from his family? Mary. And who in John, for example, approaches him? Mary. And I think it does highlight the unique nature that Mary and, uh, has as the mother of God. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why Joseph didn't ask the question. I don't know, you know, why Joseph doesn't, uh, you know, isn't quoted after the angel appears to him. Um. Well, and I think, you know, that's a good point, too, that is his father Joseph, well, in one sense, in an earthly sense, his father, you know, Joseph raises him, and it, Joseph is uh, his earthly parent. But, of course, who is Jesus' true father? Well, his father in heaven, that God himself. So that, that's a good point, Steve, that, it, you know, there is that aspect as well, that his father is not just um, Joseph, but that truly his true father is God himself <laughs> yeah wait this isn't my house yeah I, I think she did uh, and, and I think you see that through the statement again in verse 51 that his mother treasured up all these things uh, in her heart all right wow we actually got through that a little bit quicker than I when I thought uh, yes oh question David Uh, I believe that's 13. For the question was made at age 12. Is that the age when they would uh, have a bar mitzvah? Or a, you know, I believe that is 13. And I, I mean, I confess, I'm not. I don't know exactly, um, but I don't think that is the necessary reason. I think again, as like Bud mentioned, this is a time where we're see, We see. What uh, Jesus was able to do, what it means that he grew strong in wisdom, what it means that he grew strong uh, in stature and in favor with God and man. So, any other questions before we start verse three? Yes, or chapter three, I should say. Uh, that, that's a very good. The comment was made. Uh, he is. Honoring his father, his heavenly father, God the Father, uh, by being in the temple. And we read that he is submissive to his mother when he returns, that he honors both father and mother um, in both the earthly sense and the heavenly sense of God the Father being his uh, true father and also our own true father. So that's a great comment. All right. Ready to start chapter three? We're actually making good progress today. Oh, not quite yet. Bud? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Uh, do you not know that I would be in my father's there. Huh? You're right. It is uh, indirect that the, the word house uh, is not oikos would be house is not directly present, but I think it would be implied by the very nature of him being in the the temple. Um, that that was the house of the Lord, uh, and so you're right that in the in the Greek it is not directly implied, but I uh, I'm reading it here that I think you know it's a pretty easy. I don't want to say addition, but the understanding is there that do you not know that I'd be in my father's place, there in my father's uh, place? Yes. Are you looking at the? Let's see. Did not know. That. Yeah, I'm looking. Let me double check that, lest I. Yeah. Well, it, where is God's business? I think that. that yeah. That, so. It, yeah. 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 So, so the comment was made that the King James version I guess probably some others translated uh, father's business yep so yeah that would be probably a plural then I'd have to double check that uh, uh, that in her translation says it's literally in the things of my father so um, I mean I like house in the sense of where God where is where is God's presence? Where are the things of the Lord? Where is the, there's a locatedness in that temple. Um, and it's an intentional locatedness. But, but you're right, very easily it could be business. It could just be translated quite woodenly, uh, things. Um, so, yes. 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 No, you're, a- you're absolutely right that there were not... Uh, so the comment was made, if you could not hear it, um, that it's not just the cross may be the fullest fulfillment of that sword piercing through Mary's own soul, but there were other moments in Jesus' lives where he scorned or rejected. Uh, our gospel reading for today, for example, in his hometown where they, uh, there is no faith, we read. <laughs> uh, there's no faith in who he is, even in his hometown. That there may be other moments where that, that prick, that sting of the rejection that... Uh, Jesus would face uh, had to affect his mother, and I would say that's absolutely correct. That uh, I would, I, I could, I would say strongly that the full fulfillment certainly is at the cross. That to, to be be witness to your son having to go through that sort of death is would truly be, a, I mean, just such a, a sword piercing uh, feeling. But there are, I'm sure, other moments that that Mary. Uh, felt that pain of the rejection that he faced, not just in Nazareth, but even um, as he continues his ministry. Yeah, no, that's a a great comment, that that this Simeon, by stating this, um, it it is indicative right away that to Mary at least, uh, it's not just going to be roses, (laughs) um, that there's going to be struggle, there's going to be hurt, And he's going to have to go through um, that hurt. Now, again, we don't know, did Jesus, for example, tell his mother what he'd have to go through? Uh, Did Jesus' disciples ever tell her, I mean, one of the numerous times he said, well, the Son of Man's going to have to suffer and die. We don't know that exactly, but we do, you're right, are given here an initial uh, and an immediate, a very early uh, indication for Mary that what she'd have to go through as his mother would not just be um, great joy. There is great joy, and certainly Simeon's uh, proclamation, the Nunc Diminus, is one of great joy. But we, you know, it's like Good Friday. It is a Good Friday, but it's not an easy Friday. It's a difficult Friday to remember what he had to go through in order to bring God's salvation freely to you and to me and to all people. Uh, and in the same way, also for his mother, uh, she would rejoice in that salvation, but it was not easy as his mother, to see him go through that. Um, All right. So, are we good? Going to chapter 3, are there any other comments? All right. We get time to go into John the Baptist, which it's actually going to be perfect, because we just quoted Isaiah 40 when talking about the uh, consolation of Israel. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius of Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis uh, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I think one of the immediate things that strikes me about John the Baptist's um, ministry is in all the Gospels when he is mentioned, what is his ministry all about? And you see it here repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was repentance to an Israelite in the first century? Sacrifice. What is one of the things. That Mary has to offer a sacrifice for, for example, in the temple that we just read. One of the turtle doves is for a sin offering. In those days, um, in order to be repentant, to return to the Lord, meant to offer a sacrifice, to repent and offer a sacrifice uh, on behalf of your misgiving, your transgression, your sin. And so what's John's proclamation? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not repentance and sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And his baptism, baptizo in the the Greek, just means to wash. Um, It's a word that occurs uh, not just in our sense of baptism, but uh, in a sense of purification, purification that it often would be used to describe what uh, metals would go through, for example, to uh, make the purest alloy. And so for him to be proclaiming this baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he is proclaiming right away the sacrificial system is not what you think the sacrificial system is. It's not what the sacrificial system used to be, but rather the sacrificial system... There's going to be one coming after me who's greater than me. And he is the sacrifice. And then we get what we quoted uh, earlier uh, from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths, and every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Uh, and we'll very shortly run into the baptism account of Jesus, and then we'll get into the gene- genealogy that Luke brings out. But we are at 10:28, and I do see there's a few people arriving for Livingstone. So, are there any quick questions on just what it meant that John was proclaiming a baptism for the repentance or a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? All right. Well. The Lord be with you as you enjoy this wonderful 4th of July weekend. It should be a beautiful day. And we will continue uh, in Luke chapter 3 next week.